Peterson for a special edition. Uh, we could call it the Checkers edition or the <laughs> World Cup edition or the Donald Trump edition. We have so many going on right now that needs to be discussed. Um, I am unfortunately coming to everyone from a very busy spot, just like Chopper's Brexit podcast is done in a pub, mine is done in a Starbucks, but it's going to be here. How are you, Isaac? I'm doing very well, thanks. It's been quite a while since we've had a gripe on the weekends, but I'm, I'm happy to be back. Of course, it's a bit of a sad occasion with England being knocked out from the semis, but we have the opportunity, well, we already are going to be achieving second best, second only yes. to 1966, so that's good. Yeah, and, and I think we should definitely give them praise that they went so much farther than expected. Um, you know, no, truly a team with a lot of heart that we anticipate will be contending for years to come. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, but I think the, the big topic today to discuss is, um, well, tomorrow there'll be the white paper published. Uh, so we obviously don't know what's in that, but Isaac, let's start by talking um, what your thoughts are on the... Um, the parent agreement we had at Checkers, and of course the resignations of David Davis, uh, Boris Johnson, and a couple other more junior ministers like Steve Baker and you know, Maria Caulfields and Ben Bradley. There's been so many, I'm, I'm losing count, but that, what do you, let's start off with your, your thoughts. Well, I think you can definitely be excused for forgetting the numbers, because I think we've all kind of forgotten. I remember, I remember seeing some, I think it was on the BBC's, and it stated that there's been one resignation or firing from every six weeks of the cabinet. It must be must be more than that. I mean, it must be more than every six weeks. But that, that seems to suggest that. Um, the first thing that strikes to my mind is that this doesn't appear to be a strong and stable leadership, unfortunately, and it doesn't appear to be a strong and stable um, agreement with the EU. I mean, whether or not collective cabinet responsibility means anything, it's... It seems to suggest now that you um, you agree to something in private and then you leak opposition to it in in public. Yeah, uh, there are definitely some concerns. I mean, it doesn't look like many Brexiteers are happy with um, the, the or at least what uh, seeming agreement. No, indeed. I mean, Isaac, what, what are your specific, I can t I'll tell you mine after you're done, but I'm curious, what are your specific biggest issues with uh, the apparent checkers agreement? Like I said, that we will find out for sure in the white paper tomorrow, but from the agreement that caused David Davis and, and Boris Johnson to resign. I think the first thing is that it doesn't appear to have any sort of vision. I mean, it, it appears to see that Brexit is defined as um, uh, Britain carrying on as usual, but just outside of the European Union. And understandably, that requires a lot of head-scratching to understand how that's going to be done. It's just managed decline outside of the European Union instead of managed decline inside the European Union. Yes. <laughs> if, if we want to more stick, stick fingers in individual parts, uh, I don't see why we have to sort of agree to um, standardising our standards with the European Union standards. Surely that should be an entirely bila different bilateral agreement as opposed to this is required. If they want us to um, take note of European Court of Justice rulings, uh, well, you can ask that as as a as a as a favour of a friend, but I do think having it as a, a requirement is rather steep. Uh, how about yourself? Yeah, I, I, I'm a 
of a similar vein to you. I, I'm, I'm biggest unhappy about not. I mean, there's there's a couple reasons. Yes, of course, vision that I, you know, you articulated well, and I, and I think that's the main reason uh, Forrest resigned. Is, you know, he he had been. You know, he wrote that big 5,000-word essay when he wasn't allowed to make that speech last summer <laughs> in the Telegraph. And, you know, I, I think that there is so much to say for the fact that it, it doesn't envision the global Britain that he's advocating, that we're advocating for sure. the, the Daily Globe, that you're advocating at uh, the CRCC, that, of course, we support the Kansas organization that we support. None of these seem to be ideas uh, that are in the checkers agreement at all no so so there's that um i i think the goods and agricultural thing are a problem for two reasons and i'm and i'm surprised fox didn't join them in the resignation so the practicalist will say well the e you know the uk is a services-based industry so agriculture and goods well that's not really a big deal well the problem with doing that is so maybe the reason that manufacturing isn't that big of a deal in, in Britain is because there have so many onerous EU regulations to abide by. And it's a lot more competitive to be a um, manufacturer outside of the EU, you know, whether it's we, you know, people think of places like China and India, but there are much other places. And the, the manufacturers that have benefited from the EU settlement of course, have been Germany with having that art, having a low currency, making exports cheaper. Indeed. But if Britain was able to make trade, having the ability to control their own food product, um, um, industrial products standards, own agricultural standards, like New Zealand did to become an agricultural powerhouse in the 1980s, that takes away a certain flexibility from two large segments of the economy and puts them outside of the realm of the discussion to where the only free trade agreements the UK could make, in essence, is our services-based agreements. Now, some defenders of Theresa May will say, well, it doesn't say that, it just says a rule book, and that, and you know, kind of implied, that, but, but either way, a rule book, common area, I mean, customs union, whatever you want to call it, it's still, we're basically having the UK abide by European Union rules. Of course. And, the third, and then the third problem is, besides it being visionless and doesn't envision moving and pivoting towards the world, the global Britain that, like I said, that Boris and, and ourselves and uh, so many of the campaigns we support, and the problem with it not being able to make, you know, rules on industry and, and um, agriculture, even putting that aside, this is only the opening bid. Yes. <laughs> The European Union could water this down further. And there's even a possibility, and now Sajajan supposedly thinks this isn't going to happen, but there's even a possibility, if you look at it, that uh, what they call a, um, the, the exact wording is, is escaping me, but like, it's something that in, in regards of mobility, oh yeah, that's it, mobility framework for European and, European and UK citizens. <laughs> Well, and they said, and supposedly, oh no, that's going to be applied neutral to just our friends, which theoretically could be Kansas, because, you know, obviously they're friends, but how do we know Michelle Barnier isn't going to water this down to being, I want most favored status for European citizens above British citizens to apply at work in the UK? None of this, I mean, like I said, is this... Is this a full-fledged remaining in the European Union? No. And so Douglas Carswell, you know, 
and um, uh, Ian Bai, um, who's a contributor, feel this is good, and then we manage diversions from there. But I'll say one more thing before I turn it off over to you. The, year, the, the EUK appears to agree if they, in this framework, that if they decide to diverge on issues of whatever reason on industry and agriculture, uh, what they call agro-foods, they agree to pay the consequences or whatever that is. So the European Union could find the UK anytime the UK wants to give its, and I'm not talking about state aid necessarily, I'm talking about any kind of time they want to give an, an advantage to UK industry or agri uh, agriculture, they would theoretically could be fined by the European Union. Which to me, this is ridiculous, and this does go to what Boris and Jacob Rees-Mogg and, and others have called this vassal state. Anyway, let's turn it over to you then. And then, no, just sort of starting at the end of what you said about the ability to the EU to still find us, it reminds me of when, a long time ago, during the referendum campaign, uh, Nigel Farage was having a debate with the um, leader of the Welsh government, leader of the Welsh Labour Party. His name currently escapes me. Uh, but they were discussing the Port Talbot Steelworks and the fact that it was looking like it was going to be closed down. And Farage said, you, speaking to the Labour gentleman, I've forgotten his name. Could you remember by any chance? But it's, it's somewhat irrelevant at this point, but poor chap. The idea was, you wanted to support it, I wanted to support it, but the fact is, none of us can do anything in the EU, because we just have to sit still and watch the whole thing collapse. And so, understandably, after Brexit, we may wish to support Steelworks, or another industry, any particular industry, but now it seems that we thought we were getting that with Brexit, but now we're not actually. And returning to this issue of the, um, the, the common rule book, well, what's the difference between a rule book and a, a law book? I don't see that them there to be that much difference. I mean, are we now to be remained under the um, the current EU law about the bananas? We're allowed to have street bananas and not curvy bananas. And as as the CRCC, I will stick my the Commonwealth or or in here and mention that bananas from the Caribbean islands, especially the con the ex colony and realm of Saint Lucia, are inherently more curved because that's where they grow there, as opposed to bananas grown in places like Costa Rica. So, in actual fact, whether the EU means it or not, if we agree to this common framework, we're effectively saying we um, we decide that we're going to discriminate against St. Lucian bananas. It's interesting that in stupid on the conservatives' well, part, and I think after this be a good transition to talk about the conservative party, but it's interesting that the Brexit agreement put together by Theresa May, Molly Robbins, Gavin Barwell, and some of these Tory Remainer types, this is such a very, it's saying for the south of England, for services, they'll be over, they'll be out of the the EU rules, they'll be out of the onerous burdensomes, but the north of England and other parts of the country like Wales or Northern Ireland that would have, that are more industrial and agricultural based and who voted for Brexit in larger parts 
than did the South, they have to keep with the EU rules. And it just seems like besides being unfair, it seems to be completely tone deaf um, in terms of uh, electorally, um, in terms of coming up with a um, strategy to, you know, win elections. Anyway, Isaac, um, what do you think about the state of the Conservative Party now? Are they, are they in trouble? Uh, what do you think? Well, I mean, <laughs> we've been discussing, or I think political pundits all over the world have been, especially in the UK, have been discussing the death of the two major UK parties for oh, for a very long time, I think ever since, probably since Miliband lost the election. Uh, I th they're in trouble, for sure. I think there's a, as, as if May decides to keep on fighting to remain in part power, there... The Conservatives are going to be moving towards having taking a pretty heavy beating in the polls because a lot of people, I doubt very much, are going to vote for the Labour Party out, out of frustration with the Conservatives, but they're very likely to stay at home because they would feel uh, that they've been betrayed. I mean, you've heard it. I mean, was it Peter Bones' um, constituency party? They just the, um, the campaigners just went on strike because they said, what's the point of campaigning anymore because we didn't get anything out of it? We've been betrayed. Yeah, and then Nick Cole's trying to say that that's not happening, and this is ridiculous because it's happening all over Tory Twitter. It's happening all everywhere you look in terms of talking to conservatives. I, I've met and talked to me, I, very few. I can get on one hand the amount of conservatives who are happy with the deal. But anyway, go ahead. That was just a side note just to follow what you were saying. But. Indeed, and what's, I mean, just as a number, what are the overall number of Conservative uh, marginal seats? I mean, I don't know it off by heart, but I believe it's a, a fairly large-ish number. And, I mean, how many of them are in danger? I believe the Gower, I believe, has a majority of 27 votes. That means it requires, if 27 or 28 people are fed up with this Brexit agreement, they don't, they don't necessarily have to vote for another party. They just sit at home and do nothing. And suddenly the um, MPs, the Conservative Party, realise that they have one fewer member in the House. And it can easily continue because I believe the members um, at the Telegraph said they've never seen so many letters of frustration and anger being mailed into their um, offices except for the expenses scandal back in 2014. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And I, I think that the conservatives are really. I, I think I want to talk about conservatives generally, then we should transition to the prime minister itself. But in 2017, they won 42% of the vote, which was the highest percentage likely they won in 1992. And they won that almost exclusively from voters trying to keep Brexit. Because if you look at some of their more remaining seats, they fell. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with being strong and stable and not appearing and finding, you know, and just running the worst campaign of all time, but, and Jeremy Corbyn scaring people. But in general, you know, the fact is they got such a high percentage by people who wanted a true Brexit to be delivered. And the Conservative Manifesto said very clearly, outside the single market, outside the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, outside the customs union and the free movement and labor they still haven't figured out what they're voting for so there weren't many people who voted for labor i mean 
concerted labor movement issue of Brexit, even though they did have a Brexit supporting manifesto just because Corbyn secretly wants Brexit so he can nationalize industry. But um, the, the interesting thing is, to me, is that besides them being tone deaf, that they... That, that, that the party leadership, and I think this would be a good time to switch to the prime minister, they, they just feel they need to constantly cater to this London bubble that appeals to no one. Like, I mean, this is a small thing, but uh, the conservatives decided, I don't remember the last time under Theresa May, I mean, the last time I remember, Brexit aside, the conservatives stood on a conservative platform, a traditionally conservative platform, it was the 2015 election. And what did they promise? Triple lock. They, they said no new income. They did a triple tax lock. No income tax rises, uh, no property tax rises, and no, v, uh, no VAT tax rises. And then they promised an a inheritance tax cut. And guess what? They won the election. Surprise, we surprise. Yeah, we have not seen that under Theresa May. She feels the need to do surveys into diversity at Oxford University. Well, you know, diversity at Oxford University is nice, but from what I can tell, Oxford is not a racist institution. If anything, it has had world leaders the world over have been made and have gone to school at Oxford on pretty much every continent. This is not a problem there. They've spent time virtue signaling about Pride Week. They've spent time throwing an, a huge amount of money at the NHS without any way to pay for it besides maybe tax rises. Uh, you know, it, it just, it's just disastrous leadership, but they do all this to seek approval of the Guardian, I, I believe. <laughs> who, uh, I, I guess, who hate them anyway. I mean, if, if the Tories went out and said, we believe, if they dug up Margaret Thatcher's grave and spit on it and dropped a, you know, like, and started, you know, stabbing, you know, old Tory voters in the back or something, the Guardian would still criticize them and say it was too late. But, like, it, it, this, this obsession with the London bubble, I think, ties into their obsession with Brexit because in London, people talk about minimizing Brexit damage. You know, the businesses that fund the Tory party. Well, you know, yes, the CBI doesn't, doesn't see Brexit as an opportunity. But they're oh. totally turning away from their voters. Their voters, overwhelmingly, put Lord Ashcroft fought the election. Polls taken now, polls at Conservative Home, at the YouGov poll uh, recently. All of them, by and large, do not like this agreement. And I think it goes to, I'm, I have to say this, the leadership of Theresa May. So say what you like about David Cameron and say that you like about him going a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs during the EU referendum campaign. There wasn't people resigning every seven weeks when he was prime minister. They were, at, they were clear on cutting taxes. The economy got better. The deficit was being reduced. And we got to stay in Europe. Theresa May, I'm still not clear what exactly her leadership is, but I, I don't want to be too harsh. I think what is, uh, what is your verdict on the job the prime minister is doing so far? Well, I think um, if we take it from one point of view, the Prime Minister done an excellent job in keeping um, Jeremy Corbyn out of power in Number 10. And that, of course, is a, um, a major service to the nation, to which I'm sure we are all grateful. Whether someone else could have done that more efficiently, ah, well, there's a good discussion. <laughs> uh, I, it's hard to say. I mean, the Prime Minister always was a very um, close held her cards very close to herself most topics anyway I mean she doesn't seem to have the basic sort of or had the basic conservative opinion that 
the people generally know what they're doing and we can more or less leave it to them and just ensure that nothing seriously bad goes wrong but otherwise that's fine she seems to be more from the the left hand side of the party where we have to be doing things there's sort of there's an active change and then there is a lot there's there is a need for change and this is the generation the brexit generation that is asking for change but it seems the change we're asking for is a new model change something like we haven't seen for a long time but what the change we're getting is more of the old change which we're voted against and as you say it's very much limited to um, the, Lon the London area and that sort of location which I understand I mean if that's where Westminster is that's obviously where MPs spend an awful lot of their time but there is more to the nation than Westminster and as much as the country may try and be popular the fact is the Conservative Party now really are probably more likely to going to be the party that let's put it this way there are more votes in crushing UKIP's high than there are in crushing the Lib Dems rather high which was quite a long time ago by now so I think that might be, that might be something that the Prime Minister should consider I think the Prime Minister should be doing a fair bit of considering it's not my position to ask her to resign or otherwise, but I'm not by any means wholly in support of what she's done. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, if, if we're to see, there's a lot of talk on, in Westminster about removing her, and um, on the table, I think that's probably a good idea. But the timing, I think, is, is interesting. What do you think about the idea of moving for no confidence now, or should it be something that requires more waiting to a, a more opportune time, and just at the moment, maybe just voting down her bill? That, that, that just seems to be what the ERG wants to do. Well, I mean, I think the first question is, what more opportune time can we have? I think if we wait... Or if the ERG are, <laughs> there's me aligning myself with them, naming my colours to the mast. What, what's, what is a more opportune time? Because if the Prime Minister isn't going to change her position, I do think she, in the interests of the nation, in the interest of the party, and in the interest of everybody, in the public interest, should consider changing her job. If she doesn't, then I think it is the job of the Conservative backbenchers to do what they've believed to be best for the country, and I would agree. I think a simple vote of no confidence would be very dangerous and then it might trigger another election. That's also why I'm concerned with this proposal of vetoing the Prime Minister's decisions in the House of Commons because the Prime Minister's been defeated plenty of times by the um, left of the party on many issues. Not quite as often as she has been in the House of Lords, but if, that's, if she now gets defeated by the right of the party, we're going to move an awful lot closer to a vote of no confidence, and that risks having a whole new election. If the Conservative Party themselves, an MP themselves, could decide, you know what, we as Conservatives have no confidence in Theresa May as the leader of the Conservative Party, and we wish to put a new head of the Conservative Party, who, by mere coincidence, will also be the Prime Minister, then I think that is by far the best way to go, and I would advise doing that swiftly before inertia is lost, but of course I do not have all the facts and my fingertips like our MPs do. Yes, I, I, I agree. Um, uh, just two things, though. I, 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 don't, I 
don't worry about. These are not necessarily saying I'm right or wrong. It's just my thinking. I I think defeating the prime minister on the amendments from the ERG, the four proposed today, are fine. Just because because of the fixed term parliament act, a it requires a two thirds vote to get uh, to to trigger no confidence in a government, and like in the past. And what was proposed in the 2017 Conservative Manifesto, if they would have won a majority, it would have required um, a, a, a simple majority of the House, so it's thin. But regardless of if it's two-thirds or not, I, I think that it's okay to defeat her on those things. It's just my thing. Um, but of course, you know, if she were to make things a vote of confidence herself, I mean, that's where it could get dicey, but again, it would still, I mean, theoretically, conservatives could keep her in power as sort of a zombie prime minister, which, let's face it, she kind of already is. Um, the the, the issue of opposing her through conservative MPs, I agree with, but I have two concerns. I'm not saying that these are necessarily should override getting rid of the prime minister, but they're just two concerns that I have. Indeed. The first off is I worry that if the election fails, and you know, there's been no confidence failed, conservative party rule is that she would be in there for a year uh, later. And that's not something that I think is ideal. I don't want her somehow crushing the Brexiteers and then creating this permanent uh, Indeed, and that will be it. There will be a risk of um, Luke permanently losing the um, Brexiteer voice in Parliament, so I do see what you mean. In terms of, if we're looking at what we should do to go forward, like I said, the time to get rid of her, would it be with the votes in Parliament? But the other thing that I was thinking about is would it maybe be better to depose May in, say, January after, and, and the reason I'm thinking is this, because the EU can't necessarily, because if, you, if there are leadership concerts now, the worry is that the EU will stop negotiating, which actually wouldn't be necessarily bad, yeah. but it, it would leave Parliament remaining, remain of Parliament an excuse to then say, oh, we have to extend Article 50 because it's a leadership election and we have to extend it for the three months. And since Remain has like a majority in Parliament, I worry about a leadership election at that point, encouraging them to stop Article 50 for a couple months, which could possibly lead to a worse deal. Whereas if you were to veto what, uh, or add amendments to May's withdrawal bill, excuse me, her trade bill, and then by the time it's January, if Parliament votes down uh, the Brexit bill, that would leave us no deal. And that would necessarily be better to the NWTO deals and get a bad deal, as May used to say when she wasn't lying, that no deal is better than uh, get a bad deal. But um, what do you think about that scenario, Isaac? I, I see what you mean. Uh, I'm not sure... I, I can definitely see the um, Remainer-controlled Parliament deciding we're going to try and interrupt Article 50. I can see the Lib Dems and uh, Servants Cable deciding, oh, this is a very good way to get a lot of votes and a lot of excitement. But I can't see the, um, the European Union and the Commission really buying that, to be honest. 
Yeah. I, I, I would see them saying, well, you've had more than enough time to agree with this, and then going full speed on ahead with their punitive Brexit, because I think, I could be mistaken and misjudging them, but I think they're more interested in punitive Brexit than they are in um, really achieving a workable agreement or arrangement. Yes, Damascus Road. No, it is. Yeah, Road to Damascus, St. Paul moment. But um, what do you think about who do you like to replace her? Um, and I guess we should phrase it in we can say our ideal, and then who we think is likely to be elected by the MPs and then the um, and then by the parliamentary party. Well, personally, for an ideal, I would say it would be um, Jacob Rees-Mogg. I can definitely see him being elected by the party, if, if and this is a big if, if the MPs are happy enough to put his name forward on the list. I can see that not being the case. I can see them wanting to go for someone else. At the same time, I see um, the other name frequently tossed into the, into the ring, Boris Johnson. I think he may be even more um, opposed or even more unpopular among certain Conservative MPs, then they might make him hard, hard to get his name on the list as well. Uh, there, there are plenty of other names. I mean, the Conservatives have a remarkably deep field. I mean, they have a lot of very good MPs who would all make pretty good leaders and who all have pretty good experience and have dreams for what Brexit can mean for the country. Because I think that really is what is needed at this point in time, as opposed to um, someone who with lots of experience. Yeah, I mean, they say that the people who usually win leadership elections are people that come unexpected. Um, yeah, I, I think in terms of my thoughts, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, yeah, I, I think that he's uh, definitely the most talented, uh, the most articulate spokesman um, <laughs> in the services. I mean, um, he, you know, despite his caution, but he, he does appeal to to certain uh, Tory voters, believe me, I've, and non-Tory voters. I've, I've been in a couple... Jacob Rees-Mogg groups, one of which I had to leave because there were some extremists in there. But, oh dear. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, but, uh, but in general, I, I think that um, Boris is my favorite in the sense that, I, I mean, 
he's a perfect example, and the odd thing is that he was marijuana in this, that the Westminster bubble hates his gut because he appeals to so many people because he's such a good speaker because, I mean, he probably won the Leaf campaign or had a lot to do with winning the Leaf campaign with his speech and the debate and get the standing ovation because he can, he can talk about a vision. Yes. Uh, I think that Mog is likely to support um, Boris for a couple reasons because Mog keeps talking about that you can't become leader of the Conservative Party if you've never held a cabinet position. And for now, he hasn't. He may change his tune if the leadership becomes available, but that's at least what he says right now. Indeed. I think it would make sense to have an alliance of Jacob and Boris, but Boris may need some support from a Remainer side to get his, um, to get into the final two. There's talk that David Cameron met him on Thursday and persuaded him and plotted with him to resign because they agreed, um, according to Sky News, they agreed that the Brexit deal was the worst of both worlds. Indeed. Which, you know, I, I can see that the three Utonian chums sticking together, um, <laughs> Dave and Boris and, and uh, Jacob, all eating guys. That, so that makes sense. But I think he may need somebody like Liz Truss. I think if he were to offer, I like Liz Truss a lot. I don't know if I want her to be leader, um, but I think that she'd make a very dynamic, because you're talking about deep bench, she'd make a very dynamic chancellor, because unlike Philip Hammond, who seems to be convinced in the status quo, she, what is, what is that phrase she uses, that Uber-riding, delivery-eating, Freedom fighters. I'm missing one more. She did it with threes, but you know she talks about a an economy that's that's more built for the future. Um, and I think a Boris Liz trust her being a remainer, but a very soft remainer. She calls herself a reliever. Um, would be something that would be good. Um, in terms of other names mentioned, people talk about Sajid Javid. I'm I'm not. I'm not convinced that he'd be a great leader. I don't like the way he went from a clear long um, Europe skeptic to being a um, a remainer. Yeah, a very soft remainer, but a remainer. He has been good. I do like his home secretary. He's insisting that EU citizens have no special rights, but I don't necessarily believe him given that track record. Um, but I, I do think he's a smart man. I just He's sure. untrustworthy. As far as untrustworthy goes, you cannot trust a word Michael Gove says. Besides the fact that he's uh, sat Boris in the back, besides the fact that he is running a very left-wing um, environmental department to get the remaining wing of the party behind a future leadership pick, but his just unabashed defenses and promotion of Theresa May's deal, supposedly after being one of the lead, leading lights of the lead campaign. I, you know, I don't, I don't really trust him. So I, I think that leaves us with me with Boris and Jacob, and I think that's just where we both are. Um, but I, I know we're missing more people, but those just seem to be the two that stick out to me. What do you, what do you think about a David Davis having like a caretaker leadership and then passing it on to somebody younger after that? I, c I could see that happening, yes. Uh, I think it would be pretty good at it. There, there, there are a lot of experienced persons in the Conservative Party. You could definitely see as providing caretakers. I mean, there's even been, I think, there's some questions that Ian Duncan Smith may come back for some more quiet manning. <laughs> now that would be something, wasn't that? After his poor tenure as leader, I mean, he wasn't a bad leader, but he, 
He was in the middle of, you know, Blair mania, basically. <laughs> well, it's a hard time to be a Tory leader in that, in that point. It would have been as exciting yeah. for um, David Cameron to come in at the end when everything was all beginning to unravel. Yeah, he kind of got a little lucky in that sense, didn't he? Um, I, I think the other one that we could possibly think of, you know, maybe leading to a, a young cabinet minister, uh, you know, somebody like... A, you know, a James Cleverly or Suela um, Fernandez, both young, um, dynamic uh, people. I mean, he came and became leader after four years. Usually you want a little more gray hair than that. <laughs> Dominic Rod is another idea. He's now the new Brexit secretary. And then others like Amber Rudd, Jeremy Hunt, no. <laughs> you sure? And what about Pretty Patel? Do you, you think that she would be somebody you could support, or? Uh, I could definitely think she'd be someone who'd be definitely worth be definitely be worth cheering for. I think she's even more, unfortunately, more of an outside number than okay. even um than even Jacob Rees-Mogg. I think probably even cleverly courting, quasi courting, they'd probably all be easier or less opposition to get them up there. Uh, I think yeah. she do. I think she do very well, but I I think unfortunately her rather ignorant, rather unfair sacking for um meeting with a friend on holiday. Shocking, shocking, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Israel has an ally or whatever. There's <laughs> a lot of enemies in the civil service, as we found out. I mean, Brent Cameron's article, for instance, on the civil service, I thought was excellent. Oh yes, uh, for sure. Yeah. I think okay. Well. One final thing, I mean, so the summer silly season is likely to happen soon. Um, it's just a little later this, this uh, week. Um, but any uh, any last thoughts you think that, well, what, do you, what do you want to, do you think, um, well, what do you think the, the ARG should do then? Uh, is your final conclusion that they should move for the no confidence now in, in uh, and cause a leadership election, or at least try, or do you think that it might be worth trying to defeat the government, or at least get them to accept those amendments? Oh, I'd definitely say try to accept the amendments first. I mean, the um, the nuclear button should never be the first response, as well as the last resort. It should. So I would definitely say try and get a... For whatever reason, the Prime Minister clearly feels that seems to be, or seems to be feeling that the ERG is trying to plot and oust her. So I think the first thing that will be done is more or less just to say, look, we may not agree on everything, and in all honesty, we would much rather have different Prime Ministers to you. We don't want to subject the nation to all this upheaval for the various reasons that you very eloquently mentioned. And say, can we try and get a proper Brexit in the time to go? And who knows, maybe the white paper we see soon will be that. And that the crisis will be averted until January or maybe even later. But we can always, we can always hope. You can. All right. Well, Isaac, um, it's been good talking to you, and, and we apologize to our listeners for having it so long. It's very busy on both of our fronts. Um, you know, personally, Isaac, it's, you've been working hard as as have I. But um, we're still putting out the articles. We're still getting good articles. We really like. Um, and we're doing it every day for our readers. For so sure. we hope you enjoy this podcast. And Isaac, uh, let's be sure to do this again sooner rather than later next time. Sure, I look forward to it and wish all our listeners a very happy summer.